before we uh, dig in here to the book of 2 Corinthians, I thought it would be good if we took an overview uh, perspective of what's been going on in the, in the church in Corinth and, and where Paul's at in his life and all of those kinds of things. So bear with me as I give a little bit of introduction, you, if you will. Uh, during the Apostle Paul's life, he went on three missionary journeys, and most of your Bibles have a map in the back that will tell you what those journeys were. And During those times, he went from city to city, and he stayed for different lengths of time, and he, he was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the Messiah. He would go into the synagogues when he was rejected, he would take the gospel message to the Gentiles. Near the end of his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul uh, left Athens and he came to the city of Corinth, which is where we've been studying in 1 Corinthians uh, for the last several months. His arrival and his time there in Corinth is, is detailed for us in Acts chapter 18. So I just want to kind of summarize it for you. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he met a Jewish man named Aquila and, he had a, and his wife named Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were husband and wife. And they both made tents, and Paul also being a tent maker, they made tents together for a living. And Paul stayed with them, and he worked with them, providing for his physical needs while he was in Corinth. He, he didn't depend on the church, but he was tent making. Maybe you've heard it say a pastor's tent making. He's, making, he's working outside of the church to provide for the physical needs. So that's what Paul was doing. But on their Sabbath day, which was Saturday, Paul would go into the local synagogue and the scripture tells us that he would reason with the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah. So he would try to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And eventually the Jewish people in Corinth, well, they opposed Paul. They began to blaspheme Paul. They didn't like Paul very much and he left the synagogue and he vowed to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which were the non-Jewish people there in Corinth. So what did Paul do? He went right next door because next door to the synagogue was a house. And the man who owned the house said, sure, Paul, you can teach from my house. You can teach the Gentiles. And Paul did. And many of the Christian Gentiles believed in Christ and were baptized. Eventually, the scripture tells us, even the ruler of the synagogue came to believe in Jesus Christ. But there was still a big faction of Jewish non-Jewish believers there in Corinth that did not like Paul. And so what happened is as the persecution against Paul increased, Paul became, well, scared. He became worried for his safety. He began to sort of wonder, should I leave Corinth? Is it, is it still safe for me to be here? And during this time of turmoil in Paul's life, Paul had a vision and the Lord spoke to him. And this is what the Lord said. He said, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silence, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. No one's going to attack you to hurt you, but that certainly didn't mean that they weren't going to attack him. They weren't going to attack him physically, but emotionally and spiritually, he would be under attack. Eventually, Paul was brought before the leaders there in Corinth on a charge of violating the Jewish laws of worship. The case was thrown out, and Paul would continue his ministry there in Corinth. Paul remained in Corinth a little while longer before he eventually set sail or set off to Antioch. This concluded his second missionary journey. A few years later, Paul would begin a third missionary journey, his third missionary journey. And uh, Paul, Paul would, during this journey, he would spend two and a half years in Ephesus. That's the church that Paul would write, write the letter to the Ephesians. And while he was in Ephesus, while he was there in Ephesus, Paul began to learn about the problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. Remember, we studied 1 Corinthians. All that stuff was being told to Paul while he was in Ephesus. In order to correct them, Paul sent a letter to the church in Corinth. 
He sent a letter trying to fix their problems. This is not 1 Corinthians, the letter that he sent. The letter that he sent was misunderstood by the Corinthians, and it was lost. We don't have a copy of it. It's not part of the scriptures. We don't know where it went. Obviously, God didn't want us to have a copy of it. But after hearing about this misunderstanding from his letter, and after receiving an update from the Corinthian church, Paul wrote another letter to the church in Corinth. He wanted to set things straight. And this is the letter, this second letter, is the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. So it was really his second letter, but we know it as 1 Corinthians. He wanted to address the carnality of the congregation, but he also wanted to address the fact that they were rejecting Paul as an apostle. You can imagine what it would be like to establish a church and have the people turn against you. And you're trying to, you love them, you care for them, you want them to grow in the Lord, but they're coming against you. That's what Paul's dealing with. After 1 Corinthians was, was written and delivered to the church, things got worse. So if you can picture yourself at the church in Corinth, you've just got the letter of 1 Corinthians, things begin to get worse rather than better. Wanting to make things better, Paul hears about it and he sets sail from Ephesus to Corinth. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul refers to this visit and he calls it a painful visit. It was a difficult visit. He says he was with them in much sorrow. And still, there was no solution, even as Paul himself showed up in Corinth. Upon leaving Corinth, Paul went back to Ephesus, and he wrote a third letter to the Corinthians. This letter was carried back to Corinth by Titus, and Paul mentions this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says this, he says, it grieved him to write the letter, and we also know that it contained church discipline. He was handing out some church discipline that was necessary. This letter was also lost and not preserved for us. So Paul wrote one letter, we don't have it. Paul wrote the second letter, we call it 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote a third letter, we don't have it. Well, eventually Paul would leave Ephesus. He would pass through Troas, and while in Troas, he looked uh, for Titus, but he didn't find him. He finally caught up with Titus in Macedonia. As he caught up with Titus in Macedonia, he wanted to hear what was going on in Corinth. What happened with the church after I wrote that third letter that we don't have anymore? In Macedonia, as he finally met up with them, Titus said, Paul, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is the church in Corinth is changing for the better. The bad news is there's still a lot of people who don't like you there. They're not accepting you. They don't want anything to do with you. With these things on his mind, with these fresh in his heart, Paul pens the letter from Macedonia to the Corinthian church that we know as 2 Corinthians. So that gives you a little bit of background as Paul's writing this letter that we're about to study. What's going on in his life? What's gone on in his ministry? In the letter of 1 Corinthians, we saw the apostle Paul correcting and reproving the church for their carnal nature and their rejection of him as an apostle. The focus was on the church, on the people. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, the focus is going to be on Paul. We're going to see Pastor Paul, if you will, on full display for us. We will see his humility. He will describe himself as a lowly clay pot. He will describe himself as being inadequate. We will also get a chance to see his spiritual growth. He's going to open his personal life up to us. We're going to see his spiritual growth through the difficulties that he endured in ministry. 
We're going to see the price that Paul paid for his ministry, what it cost him. We're going to see the great hardships he endured as a result of his ministry of serving the Lord. We're going to see his reluctance to defend himself physically when attacked. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, we will see Paul's godly character shine through as he interacts with some of the most troubled people in the church in Corinth. Some of his most difficult members, some of his most difficult things he has to deal with, we're going to see unfold here in 2 Corinthians. We'll also see Paul's passionate and pastoral care for the believers there in the church. It would be easier to walk away and say, forget about it. You guys are on your own. But that's not Paul's heart. His pastor's heart is going to show us that he cares for them. He wants to see their spiritual growth. He's concerned for their physical safety. He's not going to give up. He's going to continue writing and continue teaching. Now, I will tell you, if you are in the midst of a trial, if you are in the midst of suffering or you're in the midst of hardship right now today as you came in here, I believe that as you study and we study 2 Corinthians together, you are going to be comforted. You are going to see things, you're going to see God from a different perspective, perhaps one that you've never seen him from before. I think you will be encouraged as we study through 2 Corinthians. With all that said, let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In the very first word of this very first verse, the word or the name Paul, there's a message. Paul's life speaks boldly of the grace of God. Before he was Paul the apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. Before, before he was zealous for Jesus, he was zealous for God, but zealous against the followers of Jesus. Before he wrote most of the New Testament, he would stand by and watch as Christian martyrs were persecuted, killed, murdered for their faith. Saul of Tarsus led the way when it came to persecuting believers. Saul believed he was, going, he, Saul believed he was doing God a favor. He was fighting for what he believed and what he thought was right. He was preserving the purity of the law. He also believed that he was blameless when it came to keeping the law, only to find out that it wasn't what you did on the outside. It was what you did on the inside that mattered. One day, Paul's life changed. He had a change in his life. Acts chapter 9 records the story. While traveling down the road to Damascus, and the scripture tells us he was breathing threats and murder towards the followers of Jesus. He wanted to kill him and lock him up, it says. Paul saw a great light, and he was blinded. And he heard a voice, and the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's Paul, the persecutor of the Christians. Now he's afraid and he's trembling. And Paul says what we should all say when we hear the voice of the Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, 
Paul was instructed to go to the city. Go into the city and wait, and you'll be told what to do. And he did. He went in the city, he fasted, and he waited. In the meantime, the Lord sent a man named Ananias to Paul. Ananias comes to Paul and he prays for Paul, and we're told the scales that were blinding Paul fell off of his eyes. And the Lord said, Paul was a chosen vessel. The Lord said, Paul, to, the Lord said through Ananias, to Ananias, he said, Paul's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. But he didn't stop there. He went on and he said, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. At his conversion, the apostle Paul was told he would suffer for the name of Jesus. He would suffer for his faith in Christ. Paul was told that he, was su- that he would suffer many things, and he did. If you've read Paul's letters, you know the suffering that he endured. It's important for us to remember that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost. Some Christians don't want to pay the price. They want the security of salvation, but they want the looseness of the world. They want the things the world has to offer. In other words, they want the crown, but they don't want the cross. They want the the end of my life salvation. I can live with Jesus and sit on a cloud and strum harps or whatever that is. I want that. But when it comes to following Jesus today, right now on this earth, no, I don't want that. I want to do what I want to do, they say. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wants to be a follower of Jesus, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you desire to be a follower of Christ? If you do, it's going to require you, and I'm obligated to tell you, you must deny yourself. You will be required to take up your cross. That means unto death. It's not a, it's not a well, I'll follow Jesus today and not tomorrow. I'll give it a test ride and see how it works out. That's not really following. Following says, I will follow you. I will deny myself. This means there will be things that you want to do that you can't do. There will be things that you don't want to do that you have to do. You must be committed to following Christ unto your death if necessary. I find it amazing that Paul was told he would suffer for the name of Jesus. And Paul paid that price. If somebody shared the gospel with you, they said, come to Jesus and you will suffer for his name. How many of us would have signed up? No, no. We want to hear, I want to hear everything's going to be okay. I want a financial blessing. I want want this fixed in my life. No, no, Paul's instruction was, follow me, Paul, and you're going to suffer. Oh, you're going to take my name in front of kings. You're going to be able to speak highly of me, but you're also going to suffer. And and we'll see there's a reason for Paul's suffering. After he was converted, he went from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the apostle. Look at verse 1 there. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. As Paul writes this letter, he identifies himself as an apostle. It means one who is sent out. He tells us his apostleship was from Jesus Christ, and it was by the will of God. It wasn't by man. Man didn't put, put, make him an apostle. Man didn't take a popular vote. In fact, at this very moment in his life, his apostleship was in question in Corinth. They didn't even believe he was an apostle. And Paul says, I'm an apostle by God's will, not by human choice. 
I'm an apostle because God called me to be an apostle. Not because, not, it's not based on what you think. I'm going to be who God called me to be. Paul wasn't interested in conforming to what or who they wanted him to be. He was interested in serving and pleasing God and in, in being who God wanted him to be. Paul was interested in doing God's will in spite of what everyone else around him thought. Are you? Are you interested in doing God's will in your life? Are you really interested? If it means suffering, are you interested? Whatever it means, whatever direction it takes, are you interested in doing God's will for your life? Let me ask you this. Are you in the center of God's will for your life? Right now, as you sit here, are you in the center of God's will for your life? What exactly is it that, what is, you might think, what does God want in my life? I don't even know what that means. What do you mean am I, am I in the center of God's will? Let me make it real easy for you. Let me make it real simple to understand. God's will will always line up with God's word, right? God's will will always be in accordance, in line with God's word. So are you living your life according to God's word? You see, the answer to that question is either yes or no. Either I am or I'm not. Are you living as a husband according to God's word? Are you living as a wife according to God's word? Are you in a relationship? Are you doing it according to God's word? All that you're doing, are you working as an employee according to God's word? All that you're doing, all the things going on in your, on your life, is it according to God's word? Well, I thought God's will meant where do I work? Where do I live? No, no, see, those are the small personal details that you can work out with him individually. The big picture, are you living your life according to the word of God, which will put you in the will of God and everything else will begin to work out around you. It's so simple, yet so complicated, isn't it? Oh, it's easy to say it, but hard to live it. If you're living in a way where you're doing things contrary to God's word, you're doing things that are not found in God's word, then I must tell you you're living outside of the will of God. You don't want to be outside the will of God. The longer someone stays there, the harder it is to get back. The more ties that you make with your jobs and your communities and your friends and your people, the harder it is to get back into God's will. Now, I want to share something with you that's important to understand about God's will. When God's will and God's word keep us from doing something, it's not that he doesn't want us to have any fun. It's not that he's, he's, he doesn't, well, he, he, just, he just wants me to sit home all day and do nothing. That's not the case at all. When God's word limits us on something, it's because he loves us. It's because he knows that us doing that is going to bring some sort of hardship into our life. The Bible says don't steal. Okay, so if I'm stealing, I'm outside of God's will. But why did the Bible tell us not to steal? One, we're creating a victim, something that's getting taken from them. But what's going to happen if we do that? We're going to suffer the consequences. And God says, I don't want you to suffer those consequences. I don't want you to do those things that my word is placing a limit on because I love you and I know what that, if you continue down that road, I know where it's going to bring you. It's not always easy to be in God's will, to be in the center of his word. The world is always pulling and tugging on us. But as Christians, we need to constantly be re-centered. Isn't that what happens? We re-center ourselves, we center our life, and then pretty soon we find ourselves drifting out here, out there. You need to get back centered. The farther you go, the harder it is to get back. Stay centered in God's word. You're going to drift. It's part of life. The world around us is pulling us in every direction. There's addictions pulling this way. There's relationships pulling that way. Everything's being pulled, and you're going to find yourself drifting. But you need to recenter yourself. You need to bring yourself back to level, back to plumb, back to center, whatever you want to call it. You need to bring yourself back to center. 
when you're outside of God's will, you're going to build relationships and commitments and even careers. And the longer you're there, the harder it becomes to get back. The more painful it can become to get back. You may need to move. You may need to change your career. You may need to sell a business. You may need to sever a relationship. Whatever you need to do, if you're outside of God's will, I encourage you to do it. Get back to where he wants you to be, where you're supposed to be. It's worth it. I can tell you from experience, I've walked my life outside of God's will, and I've walked my life inside of God's will. And I, to this day, walk my life trying to stay inside of God's will. And it's much better to be in his will than outside of his will. I can assure you of that. God's will for Paul, and he told him so, he said, Paul, suffering, that's my will. I'm, you're going to suffer for me, Paul. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer many things, he said. Many things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right in the center of God's will, Paul had suffering. Hardship abounded. Tribulation exceeded. It was all there, part of God's will. It was hard. It was painful. But do you know what? It was the best place for him. Because as Paul pens these letters to us, as he writes the majority of the New Testament, he's writing it from a place of experience. He's showing us what it's like. From the center of God's will, Paul is writing this letter. And he says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. I want you to notice something. As much as the church comes against Paul, as much as they refute him Paul refers to the church as the personal possession of the Lord whose church is it it's the church of God it's God's church the church belongs to the Lord as a pastor I like, I like that I need to be reminded of that I need to know and be comforted by the fact that Calvary Chapel Cumberland belongs to the Lord and not me it's his church you guys are his people not my people he died for your salvation not me it's, your, it's his church, you are his people, he paid for you with his blood. This building, our radio station, all the ministries that go on are all his. I don't have to stress out about it. I don't have to worry about it. And if you're not in his will, it's not my problem. It's your problem, it's his problem. Not that I don't want to help, not that I don't want to see you in his will, I can't force you into his will. All I can do is teach you God's word. I can show you what it says. I can tell you how to apply it to your life, but you're the one that has to put it into action. You're the one that has to live it out. It's not my, it's not my problem, I say. It's not that I don't want to walk with you, because I do, but he's the one that you have to concern yourself with pleasing. There in verse 2, Paul gives, us, gives his familiar greeting. He says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the Greek word charis, and it means God's unmerited favor. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom. He uses a Greek and a Hebrew word for greeting. And shalom means peace, just what it says there. We are saved by God's grace. And as a result, we receive peace with God. Paul always places these words in this particular order. And I believe there's a reason. For until you understand the grace of God, you can't be at peace with God. You see, you can't make peace with God on your own. People will tell you, I've made peace with God. Only through the blood of Christ is peace with God possible. No other way. You can't make with peace with God on your own. Now listen, as Paul speaks of the comfort that is found in the midst 
of suffering. There in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is writing these words while he's in the midst of suffering. His reputation has been tarnished. His apostleship is under question. The people he loves so deeply and dearly are rejecting him, and he turns his focus to the Lord, not to his situation, but instead he focuses on the Lord. Did you notice that there, Paul, in the midst of this trials, he begins this letter? He does so with praise. He says, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed means worthy of praise. Happy, joyful, praiseworthy. That's what it means. Blessed. In light of his difficulties, Paul chooses to bless the Lord. He chose to praise the Lord. Do you bless the Lord at all times? Or is it only when things are going good for you in your life? Have you learned to praise God in the tribulation, in the trial? Paul has. That's why he's able to speak of the Lord the way he does. He's experienced it. You say, wait a minute, Rob. Wait, wait, hold on. Back up a little bit. How can I praise God if I'm in the midst of a trial? I don't really like what's going on in my life. Matter of fact, if God loved me and God is so good, wouldn't he just keep me from that trial? Wouldn't he just take it all away? Maybe he wants to teach you something. Maybe he wants to show you something about himself. Maybe he wants you to grow up spiritually. Sometimes it's not until our life is shaken up that we really see what's inside. Take a Coke can, shake it up, pop the top. Guess what happens? Everything inside comes out all over you. Our life is the same way. Shake it up, see what happens. Pop the top and you'll see who you really are. That's what, that's, that's what he's talking about here. When our lives are shaken up, we see what's really inside. Let's us know who we really are. Blessing the Lord is a choice that we make. You get to choose whether you bless the Lord or not. You get to choose whether he's worthy of praise this morning. When you came in, hopefully you praised him during song. We're praising him during the study of his word. But you get to make that choice if you were part of that. It's something you must choose to do. Paul made the choice. Why? Because he understood the character of God. He had an insight that we didn't have. Look how he describes God there in verse 3. He says, God is the Father of mercies and God of all comforts who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says, God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. When it says he is the Father, it means he is the originator of mercy. The Godfather, if you will. Mercy starts with him. He's the God, the Father of all mercy. It all comes from him. It begins with God. When it says he is the God of all comfort, it means he is the supreme and natural one who, who oversees comfort. He's the God of all comfort. All comfort, every bit of it. Understand this, God has a monopoly on comfort. He's the one that holds it. You say, well, I need to be comforted. You're only going to find comfort, comfort in the Lord. If you want comfort, if you need comfort, it can only be found in, in God. 
Now let me explain something to you. The world doesn't want you to believe that. The world says, no, no, you can find comfort in other things. The world says, I have things that I can offer you. I can offer you perhaps medication. I can offer you uh, maybe a drink of alcohol. I can offer you comfort food. How long does comfort food last? Till your next meal, right? You're no longer comforted. I need to be recomforted. Have you noticed that happy hour only lasts two hours? Then you have to pay full price for your drinks? You're no longer comforted anymore. It's only it's short. Paul says he is the God of all comfort. Every bit of it comes from him. But what does God do with this position of mercy and comfort? Look at verse 4. He comforts us. Who's us? That's us, right? He comforts us in most of our tribulation. Does it say most? No, it says all. All. He comforts us in all our tribulation. Don't miss that word, all. And in case you're wondering, the Greek translation of all is all. Same thing, same word, mean all, everything, every bit of it. He comforts us in all. That means every single one of your tribulations, he's there to comfort you. And you might say, oh, no, 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 no. He's not comforting me in this tribulation. No, no, I'm not feeling it. Do you realize what you're saying when you say that? If you're going through a difficult circumstance and your response is, God's not comforting me here, what you're saying is God's not doing what I want him to do. I want him to remove the situation. I want him to take away the circumstance. And if you do that, then I will bless you, Lord. But until you do, I'm just going to say you're not comforting me. I'm just going to say you're not doing what I want you to do. I want a healing. I want a spouse. I want a better job. I want this trial, this persecution. I want it taken away, and then I will praise you. Oh, be careful, Christian. That's not, that's not, that's not praising God. That, that's establishing yourself as God. That's saying, I want God to do it my way. Instead of you saying, God, I don't really like this, but I trust that your way is better than mine. Do you see the difference there? There is peace and acceptance what God has put before you. When realizing the Lord has you in a trial, he has you in a difficult situation, when you can accept that, there's going to be peace with it. Try this. Bless the Lord. Praise him for the tribulation. Praise him for being with you. Praise him for the opportunity to grow. Praise him with a humble and broken heart. I'm not saying pretend to be that everything's okay. I'm not saying you have to put on a happy face. Oh, yeah, life is just wonderful. And meanwhile, you're in the biggest trial of your life. No, no. Pray to him with those things. Tell him what's going on in your life. Tell him how you're fearful, but then realign, reestablish who he is and who you are. He's the creator. I'm the created one. He knows what's best. And if he says this is best, I'm able to put my faith in him and walk through this because I know that he's going to be with me in it. That's what Paul does. It's his pattern. He just said, praise God in tribulation, and God shows me mercy and he comforts me. Now let me explain to you how it works because this part's important. The word for comfort there, it's paraklesis in the Greek. It's from the same family of words that describes the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that work, it's called the paraclete. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, comes alongside of us to assist us. He comes upon us to empower us to do what God's called us to do. The God we serve comes alongside of us in our tribulations, in our difficulties, in our hardships. He's coming alongside of us. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you're able to handle, what you're not able to handle. And he comes right alongside of you through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
this word does not mean that God has sympathy on you. He's not sitting up in heaven going, oh, you poor thing. You're having a rough week. Oh, it's been a rough year, hasn't it? It's not what it says at all. That's not what it means. He doesn't just have sympathy on you. It means the God of all comfort, Paul just said, will come alongside you and give you assistance or help. You ever carried wood in for the wood stove? You ever had a pile of wood in your arms? And perhaps it gets too heavy for you. You ever been there where you're, you're staggering up the stairs and you can barely carry it? It's about to fall off your arms. And someone comes along and says, can I help you with that? What do you say? Some of us are stubborn. We go, no, I got it. Others will go, yeah, you can help me. What do they do? They take part of the burden away. And they help you carry the load. This is the picture that, God, that Paul's painting here. When you're in the trouble, you're, you're saying, I can't carry this any longer. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, can I help you? Some of us go, no thanks, I got it. All right, call me when you can't go any further. Take three more steps and you collapse. Can I help you now? No, I got it, I don't need you, God. Okay, but if you would just say, yeah, you can help me. Lord, I need your comfort. I need you to come alongside and help me bear this burden. I know it's good for me, I don't know why, but I'm, I, I need you. When you let them help, they relieve the burden by coming alongside. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And who receives the relief? You do. The burden's lifted. It's now there's someone carrying it with you. That's what that word of comfort means. Coming alongside, helping you carry that burden. This comfort is available to you and I. It was available to the Apostle Paul. It's available right now this morning. Think about that. If you came in here in the midst of a trial, you can be crying out, Lord, I need that comfort. Come alongside. And it says he's the God of all comfort. He will comfort you in all situations and circumstances. He didn't say he'd remove it but he will comfort you through it. Why would the Lord comfort us like this? What's the purpose in this? First, because he loves us, but look at verse four. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, it's the same word for comfort, so our comfort also abounds through Christ. Our sufferings not only provide opportunities for the Lord to comfort us, but it provides us with ministry opportunities. We can now comfort others. Haven't you ever been through a difficult circumstance only to find yourselves face-to-face -face a few years, few weeks, few months later with the person going through the same thing you did? And now you have the chance to say, let me share with you how when I was in my darkest hour, the Lord comforted me. It's a way that we minister to one another. The problem, or should I say sadly, many of us endure suffering. We endure tribulation. We endure, we endure affliction. But we never see God as our comforter. We handle, it all, we handle it. We carry that load, that burden all by ourselves. We never come to the place where we need a comforter. We're too busy complaining. We're too busy blaming. We're too busy saying, get me out of this, Lord. Therefore, we miss out on the opportunity to comfort others. With that very same comfort that we've received, we missed that chance. Let me put it this way. Don't let the suffering, the tribulation, and the affliction that you're in turn you inward. You see, when you find yourself suffering, when you find yourself difficult, when you find yourself in a circumstance, and it's you under the burden, all of a sudden you turn inward. And you begin looking at you, and it's your life and your situation. Everything else outside becomes a blur. Don't let yourself turn inward. Instead, turn upward. 
And when you turn upward, you'll be comforted, which will turn you outward. You see the difference. When someone is not turning upward, they're turning inward. They're containing everything with inside themselves. It's all them. No one can help me. No one can understand. I can deal with this. But once you turn upward, the Lord says, I'll help you carry that burden. I'm not taking it away because there's still stuff I want to teach you. But I'll carry it with you. And I'm going to use it in your life that now you can minister to somebody else. The connections the Lord makes is unbelievable. Now look, as Paul speaks of his own affliction there in verse 6. He says, now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation, your comfort, and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation, your comfort, and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the comfort or the consolation. The word affliction, it means to be physically under pressure. Physical pressure being applied to your life, regardless of where it comes from. Whether it be an illness, whether it be a disease, whether it be from your boss, whether it be consequences from a bad choice, it's physical pressure being applied to your life. There's some affliction going on in your life. If you're having pressure applied to your life, understand this, there's a purpose in it. God is doing something through it. He's doing something with it. It's for our consolation. Same word as comfort there. It's for our salvation. It's good for us, even if we don't like it. You see, the world tells us we want to be comfortable. But the Lord says, I want to comfort you. The world says, remove the circumstance, the situation, so you can be comfortable. The Lord says, no, no, let's grow through it, and I'm going to comfort you along the way. In the midst of the affliction, you'll feel like you're being crushed. And the picture there is literally a stone on top of you, just about to crush you. But the Lord will comfort you. It's all part of the process that he's working in your life. He'll come down and comfort you. How could God bring consolation and salvation to others through Paul's sufferings? Or through even our sufferings? Through suffering, Paul got closer to God. Paul drew closer to God, and he made himself rely on the Lord more and more, and God alone. Paul was a more effective minister because he suffered, because of the difficulty in his life. He was more usable in the hand of God to bring consolation and salvation to God's people because he'd suffered many things. Suffering is not very popular in our world, is it? We don't like it. We don't want it. Get it away from me. The Bible says it's good for you. It helps you grow closer to the Lord. It puts you in a place where you, need to be com- where you need comfort, and then it provides the comforter that you need. It's a growing process. This thought helps you endure the fact that it's growing. Paul says it's effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Now listen as he describes his own situation there in verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, That we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will deliver us 
you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Whatever circumstance Paul was speaking of here, and there's much controversy as which point in his life it was, what we know is it was bad. And he lived with death looming over. And we, he tells us there he didn't have the strength to handle it. I can't take it anymore. I, I've done. I, I can't carry this burden. I can't handle it. But his trust remained in the Lord who had the power to raise the dead. In other words, he said, if it kills me, so be it. If the Lord wants me to be alive, he'll raise me. If he doesn't, I'll be with him. He would later say... Uh, He would later talk about uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. doesn't matter, he says. Whatever happens, Paul tells them the Lord delivered him and he calls it from this great death. The Lord delivered him from this great death and, gave, and he gave credit to the power of faith. And don't miss it there. He also gave credit to the power of intercessory prayer. You also helping together in prayer for us. Don't underestimate the power of the prayers in your life. Don't miss the opportunity to tell someone else of the affliction in your life so they can pray with you. Pray for those who are in affliction, but if you're in the tribulation, if you're in the trial, please go to someone and say, hey, I need prayer. Please let us know so the church can pray for you. We want to walk with you in that. We can pray for you. Paul attributes his overcoming of his affliction to power of prayer. That's what he's saying there. Now, let me see if I can summarize this all for you. The Apostle Paul knew the Lord in a way that most people don't. He calls God the Father of all mercies and comfort. Why do you suppose that he could say that? Because he had experienced it in his own life. If you get the chance to talk to a Christian believer who has been through great trials and great tribulation, you need to sit and let them describe to you the God of all comfort. And that God will be with you in your trials and your tribulation. They can speak from a platform that maybe you can't understand because maybe you haven't been afflicted the way that they have. But then they can take that affliction and God will comfort them through that and they can then use that to minister to other people. Paul suffered and he was comforted. He was persecuted. He was comforted. His reputation was in question. He was comforted. He was afflicted and he was comforted. Don't we know the trials of this world are coming? Aren't they coming? Right now, you're either in a trial or you're headed into one. If you're not, in, if you're not being afflicted, you're not having a difficulty in your life this morning, don't worry, it's coming. It'll happen. It's just, it's, we live in a fallen world. It's coming that way. But we need to see the trials of this world as opportunities to grow closer to the comforter. The harder the trial, it's going to help you see God in a way that you've never seen him before, that you've never needed him before. Maybe you've been self-sufficient your whole life, and now you find yourself stuck and you can't help yourself. Go to the God of comfort. He's not going to make you comfortable, but he will comfort you and he'll walk through it with you. The father of all mercies and comfort. Don't struggle to understand. Don't struggle to get it out, to get out of it. Accept it and grow into it. It's not, our prayer is not, Lord, deliver me now. Lord, make it end. Lord, I don't like this. It's, Lord, show me more of yourself. Lord, comfort me. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, I need you now. If you're going to struggle, 
Struggle to get closer to the one who will comfort you and sustain you. Don't struggle to get out of it. Struggle to draw closer to the Lord. Bless him. Worship him. Pray to him. Let others pray for you about your situation. This goes against everything that's inside of us, doesn't it? Because when we find trouble, when we have difficulty, what do we want? Problem solved. I don't like confrontation. Problem solved. Get out of it. Just maybe. Just possibly. More reality. As you find yourself in the difficult circumstance of life, the Lord says, I want to grow you. I want to grow you. I want to draw you. I want you to see something of me that you've never ever seen before. I want you to be comforted in that deepest, darkest hour. Maybe you didn't have any responsibility for getting yourself there. The Lord says, that's okay. However you got there, whatever situation you're in, I want to comfort you through it. I want to bring you the hope and the peace that the world can't. The world will offer you many things to try to get your mind off of it, but I want to keep your mind on it, and I want to walk through it with you. See, it's not about forgetting it. It's about persevering through it. It's about finishing the race. It goes against everything we're told. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says this. He says, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, many of us want to know Jesus according to the power of his resurrection. Oh, yeah, we want, we want eternity in heaven with him. Oh, yeah, that's great. I want that. I want the crown. But it says, Paul says, I want to know Jesus according to the fellowship of his sufferings. How do you want to know Jesus? You want to know Jesus according to the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you want to be in a place so dark and so deep that he's the only one that can get you out? That he's the one that's going to minister to you and no one else? I do. I don't want to have to go through it. But if that's where the Lord takes me, if that's what I need, I'm willing to do it. Maybe some of you are sitting there this morning going, that's me right now. The Lord says, I want to comfort you through it. I want to comfort you through it. You see, many of us want to know the power of the resurrection, but do you want to know him in the fellowship of suffering? It's in these difficult times that your faith is increased. It's when you physically can't go on anymore that he comes in and says, I'll carry that load for you. Need some help? Yes, Lord, I need some help. No, no, I got it, Lord. I don't need you, God. Thanks, I'm going to keep doing it my way. I'm finding enough comfort in the world. I'm finding enough comfort in whatever I'm running to. Okay, call me when you're ready. I'll be here. He says, you need some help now? Yes, I need some help, Lord. Let me help you. And he physically helps you endure. And in doing so, you will develop a testimony that says, in my darkest hour, when I couldn't do it, the Lord comforted me. And he brought me through it. He carried me through it. And now... I'm watching as he's taken what was so dark, what was so miserable, and he's bringing it to the light. And now he's taking that very thing, and I'm using it to minister to other people. That's the fellowship of sufferings. We don't like it. We don't want it. It's good to know the Lord that way. In the storms of life, Jesus will eventually calm the wind and the seas as they're raging around you. But in the process, don't let fear overtake your faith. Put your faith in him. Accept the storm. Draw close to the Lord. If you're going to struggle, struggle to get closer and witness the comfort that only he can provide. It's real simple. It's not a popular message. Most people don't want to hear, come to Jesus, you're going to suffer, then he's going to comfort you. No, no, I don't want that. 
That's not what our culture teaches in Christianity. We say, come to Jesus, you'll be blessed. Come to Jesus, he'll fix you. Come to Jesus, all this will take place. Come to Jesus and you'll know the Lord God Almighty in a way that you never did because he just might bring you into some suffering, but he will carry you through it. He will reveal himself to you. And at the end, you keep praising him. And at the end, he's even going to use it in your life to help someone else. How cool is that? What a promise. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your scriptures here this morning, as we see and talk about suffering, and comforts. Lord, it's our fleshly desire to simply be comfortable. But yet your scripture points out a different route. Your scripture lets us know that there's comfort for those that are hurting and it's in you. And Lord, I pray that this morning, if there's anybody here that needs that comfort, that you would just be right there for them. Open up their hearts, open up their eyes. May they feel the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. May they feel your presence. May they know that in dark time, you're with them. May they be able to use that to minister to those that you would bring into their lives. Lord, may you keep them from turning inward and help them turn upward where they will find you and all the comfort that they need. In Jesus' name, amen.